This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there, and welcome to our special holiday edition of Bird Hugger. I hope you're all doing well. We're celebrating the season in a big way here at Bird Hugger, and we're hoping today's episode will put you right into the holiday spirit. On today's show, we will be talking with Laura Lukens from Monarch Joint Venture, an organization working hard to protect the monarch butterfly. It's hard to believe, but 2020 is nearly over. And so is the first season of Bird Hugger. We've had a lot of fun putting the shows together for you, and we are greatly looking forward to Season 2. Enjoy today's special episode, and I hope however you celebrate, be it Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Diwali, Boxing Day, or the Winter Solstice, that you have a very merry holiday and a happy new year. And now it's time for our year-end review. In looking back over the last year, we discussed many important topics on Bird Hugger, topics directly related to the health, safety, and well-being of the birds in our backyards. We talked about the natural history of a dozen birds, including the pileated woodpecker, the great blue heron, and the ruby-throated hummingbird. We talked about the threat that loons face due to lead poisoning from ingesting lead fishing tackle, like sinkers and jigs. We talked about all of the ways that native trees and plants support the growth of protein-laden insects that birds need to feed and raise their young. We also talked about how vital it is to leave the leaves in our backyards because their decomposition benefits the soil and provides overwintering spots for insects like pollinators. We also talked about ways to prevent birds from colliding with the windows of your house. We had an expert on the show to talk about the numerous methods to employ to keep birds safe. We also talked to experts about how to plant native seeds in winter, how to transform our lawns into an edible garden, and we even learned how to make our own bird feeders. We talked about the idea of building catios, outdoor metal and wood enclosures that allow cats to enjoy the outdoors without posing a threat to birds and other wildlife. 
Most importantly, we talked about the vital necessity of returning our backyards to native habitat in order to create biodiversity and sustainable food webs for birds, pollinators, and other wildlife. And what can we look forward to next year? We already have several guest appearances lined up for 2021. These experts will be teaching us even more about native habitat restoration, the natural history of birds and other wildlife, wildlife rehabilitation, along with ideas to make ecological gardening fun and enjoyable. And, of course, I will continue telling my personal story about how I ended up becoming a wildlife rehabilitator specializing in birds. I'm sure you're with me when I say, here's a heartfelt wish for a wonderful 2021 for all of us and our beautiful planet. A wish for a year full of recovery and restoration for wild habitat the world over and for the birds and other wildlife that inhabit those spaces. Happy holidays, everyone. For some really happy news from the state of New York. Each year, just before Christmas, workers deliver a very tall tree to New York City. The tree is destined to become the holiday tree at Rockefeller Center. However, this year, nothing had prepared the workers for what they were going to find inside the tree, and it was nothing short of a miracle. In fact, some people are calling it the miracle on 34th Street. What happened was the workers found a tiny owl nestled inside the branches of the tree. Identified as a sawwed owl, the bird had hitched a ride on the tree as it barreled down the highway attached to a hitch behind a huge truck all the way to the Big Apple. How the bird managed to hang on during a trip of 171 miles is boggling the minds of birders, avian behaviorists, and the public. A quick-thinking worker gently removed the 8-inch male sawwet and took him immediately to a wildlife rehabilitator for an examination. The wildlife rehabilitator was Ellen Kalish, director of Ravensbeard Wildlife Center in Socrates, New York. The owl was found to be uninjured. After a few days of R&R and some delicious mice, the owl, dubbed Rockefeller by Ellen Kalish, was returned to his habitat and released back into the wild. This teensy owl's strength and his survival is truly a Christmas miracle. Here's another incredible story out of New York. Now, you know I just had to report on this story, considering the experience I related in episode one about the swan that I encountered. This story shows how a single act of kindness toward an animal can set off a chain reaction of goodness in people. Recently, a young woman, Ariel Cordova Rojas, had traveled to New York's Jamaica Bay Wildlife Refuge. She was treating herself to a beautiful bike ride through the sanctuary to celebrate her 30th birthday. She was enjoying her ride around the pond of the refuge when she spotted a mute swan lying on the ground at the edge of the water. She approached it slowly and found the swan could not stand up or walk. In fact, the swan could barely lift its head. 
That's when she knew the bird was in big trouble and needed help. She took out her cell phone and called every animal rescue organization she could think of, but no one was immediately available to help transport the swan. At that point, Cordova Rojas realized she had only one option. She took off her ski jacket and wrapped it around the shivering swan and lifted the bird into her arms. Now, if you know swans, you know how big they are. Cordova Rojas is tiny and petite, and yet she somehow managed to pick up the swan, which weighed 17 pounds. The swan did not struggle at all. That rang alarm bells for Cordova Rojas. She knew the situation was not good. She was a mile from the refuge exit, but trudged along slowly, carrying the swan as gently as she could and somehow managing to pull her bike along. When she reached the exit, she caught the attention of a couple who offered to drive Cordova Rojas, the swan, and the bike to the nearest subway station. The couple then called friends who agreed to drive her and the swan and the bike to yet another subway station. Apparently, according to Cordova Rojas, sitting in a subway train with a giant swan on your lap didn't cause New Yorkers to even bat an eyelash. She said no one even seemed to notice. After a long trip across New York City, a volunteer from the Wild Bird Fund met her at Nostrand Station in Brooklyn, and from there they headed to the Wild Bird Fund's rehabilitation clinic on the Upper West Side. This is after traveling 23 miles. After an examination, the swan was found to be suffering from lead poisoning. The bird is slowly recovering, but it is extremely debilitated, and it will take months before the bird can be released. I'd like to send out a personal thank you to Ariel Cordova Rojas for her act of kindness toward an animal who was clearly suffering, and to everyone who stepped in and helped along the way. I would call that another Christmas miracle. I'd like to introduce Laura Lukens, the National Monitoring Coordinator for Monarch Joint Venture. Monarch Joint Venture is a nonprofit headquartered in St. Paul, Minnesota. Monarch Joint Venture is a partnership of over 100 organizations. This includes federal and state agencies, non governmental organizations, businesses, and academic programs. And all of them are working together to protect the monarch butterfly. Their mission is to protect the monarch and also its migration by collaborating to deliver habitat conservation practices, education, and science across the United States. These organizations include the Xerces Society, Audubon International, Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center, Monarch Watch, the National Wildlife Federation, the North American Butterfly Association, the U.S. Forest Service, and also U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Monarch Joint Venture originated within the University of Minnesota, but has since become a nonprofit operating outside of the university setting. As National Monitoring Coordinator, Laura keeps a close, careful watch on the numbers of monarchs reported by scientists each migration. She also works on a national scale to improve roadside habitat for the monarch. In addition, she researches the effectiveness of conservation methods used to help the monarch. 
Laura, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. Could you tell us all about your organization and what you do? Yeah, so the Monarch Joint Venture is a national nonprofit organization that is dedicated to preserving monarchs, their migration, and all of the different species that utilize the same habitat. In order to achieve our mission, our staff work in four main program areas, the first being habitat implementation to restore critical breeding, migration, and overwintering habitat, education and outreach to bring awareness to the different issues facing monarchs and other species, research and monitoring to learn more about monarchs and their habitats and to learn about the effectiveness of the conservation work we're doing. And then lastly, partnership work to enable collaboration and progress toward achieving our ultimate goal of conserving the monarch migration. So we work with over 100 different partnership organizations across the United States that include federal and state agencies, NGOs, private businesses, and universities. And all these organizations have agreed to come together to help the monarchs survive. Yeah, exactly. So the monarch population has experienced a, quite a severe decline over the last few decades. And there are two kind of distinct monarch populations in the United States, one east of the Rocky Mountains and one west of the Rocky Mountains. And both populations are genetically similar and the same, but they have different migratory patterns. The eastern population migrates to central Mexico in the mountains of Michoacan, and the western population migrates to the coast of California. And both of those populations have experienced a similar decline, though in the west it's been much, much more severe. There have been critical lows in the last few years. Now, you're the National Monitoring Coordinator. Tell me about your job. What do you have to do with a title like that? Yeah, great question. So as the National Monitoring Coordinator, I work to facilitate standardized monitoring of monarchs and the vegetation and habitat they rely on across the United States. We know that there are lots of different monitoring efforts going on, and we know that our analyses and results will be more robust if we're all using the same methods to collect information about monarchs and their habitat. So one part of my job is trying to get everybody to use similar methods in collecting data, and then also to increase the amount of data we're collecting through you know, researchers or conservation organizations and even citizen or community scientists. And so my role kind of came about with the formation of a national standardized monitoring program called the Integrated Monarch Monitoring Program, or the IMMP, we call it for short. And so that was a program that has really ambitious goals of measuring monarch distribution and abundance, and then also the quantity and quality of their habitat across their North American range. That is great. So tell me, what are some of the problems that are plaguing monarchs? What what are some of the issues that are preventing them from keeping their numbers at a normal number or a normal rate rather? Yeah, they're, they're really a suite of threats that monarchs are facing throughout their life cycle. And I could talk about this for a really long time, but I'll touch on a few of the big ones. The first one is really habitat loss. We know that the loss of habitat both breeding, migration, and overwintering habitat has been a significant driver of the monarch decline, both in the East and the West, Um, just like that of many insect and wildlife species throughout the country and worldwide. In the United States, we know that agriculture and development has drastically changed the way the landscape looks and what it's providing for monarchs and other species. 
One example is that tall grass prairie used to cover much of the Great Plains, and today less than 1% of that original tall grass prairie exists. Now, agricultural fields and cities cover much of that area, and monarchs no longer have the amount of food sources, being milkweed and nectar resources, available for successful reproduction and stability of their population. When you say habitat loss, do you mean new housing developments, that kind of thing? Yeah, really everything that, you know, all of the different things we're doing to change the landscape that once existed. So a lot of natural habitat, natural grasslands that were covered with prairie or milkweed and flowering plants has been converted into some kind of other land cover, like roadsides or housing developments, cities, corn and soy fields, all of those things that have changed the landscape from what it used to be in providing habitat for so many species like monarchs. So how did the monarch butterfly migration go this year, including the, you know, the spring migration up north and then the fall migration back to the Oyamo forests in Mexico? In terms of the eastern monarchs, the migration was fairly successful in the spring and they had a pretty successful breeding season, although the weather was quite hot in part of the middle summer. But as for the fall migration, which we're you know, experiencing just now, just recently, the answer is kind of we really don't know yet. It's sort of too soon to tell how successful that migration has been. We have a little bit of information from tagging data that has been submitted. So that involves putting a little tag on monarchs and figuring out where they went and where they came from. And some, some information from Monarch Watch, the group that tags the monarchs and provides those data, they found that monitors through that tagging program were less successful this year, meaning that they tagged fewer monarchs, suggesting that maybe there were less monarchs this year than last year. But otherwise, the migration was mostly on time, which is a good sign for monarchs, and the weather conditions were pretty favorable. So those two things look good for monarchs and their migration in the fall. And in terms of the weather, there wasn't a drought this year like there have been, like there has been in previous years, which has limited their nectar supply as they're making that migration south. So we'll find out how the population did in the next few weeks as they count the monarchs in Mexico or measure their area that they're occupying. But for now, it's kind of a, we don't know exactly. Right. So you won't have 2020 results until probably January or afterwards. Yeah, they typically, for Eastern monarchs, they typically come out in February, I believe, is around the time in which we get those results. So what were the numbers for 2019 and how did they measure up to previous years? Yeah, the, the the overall population size, which is measured in the area occupied in trees when the monarchs are overwintering in Mexico, that area came to just under three hectares. And in previous years, it had been a bit higher. So the overall average, I mean, the average in the 80s and 90s was a lot higher than what it's been in the last 10 years or so. So that population of under three hectares last year was still quite low compared to what it had been historically. Right. And a hectare, just for our listening audience, is roughly two football fields? Yep, exactly. About two or two and a half football fields. Right. Has there been any problem as well in terms of habitat loss with the Oyamo forest itself in Mexico, which is the the area that the monarchs like to uh, overwinter? Yeah, that's a question we get quite a lot. And 
there used to be more of a concern around forest loss in Mexico, but in the last few years, the logging has really been curbed for the most part in the OML for at least in the elevation range in which monarchs are occupying. So that's been a really good thing. And the focus on habitat loss has really been in the breeding grounds in the northern, you know, Midwestern United States. But there, there has been a recent study come out that has said the, you know, the overall forest losses that they've seen in the last few years have been due to climate change events like wind and storm-like events. So they, researchers are thinking that climate change is really the biggest threat in terms of forest loss in Mexico at the moment. Like sudden ice storms. Mm-hmm. I, I read about yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty bizarre to have an ice storm in Mexico. Yeah. So now tell me, how does fall migration work? Does a monarch migrate by itself all the way down to Mexico? Yeah, it is a single monarch that makes it from the northeastern United States to Mexico in the fall. But the reverse migration is really interesting. In the spring, that monarch that had migrated to Mexico from the northeastern United States has spent the winter in Mexico. And that monarch usually makes it to the southern United States, usually around, you know, the Texas, Oklahoma region. And that's kind of its ending point and it's mating or reproducing there. And then it's those offspring that continue the journey north. So it's usually multiple generations to get back during the spring migration. But just that one butterfly makes it the whole journey from the northern U.S. to the south in the fall. Well, that's amazing that a single monarch makes it that entire way. How many thousands of miles is that? Yeah, I think it's somewhere around, it's between two and 3,000 miles that the single monarch, which weighs less than a gram, flies the entire way. And isn't it true that the monarch is really the only butterfly that does that type of long-range migration? There are some butterflies that exhibit a, you know, a similar migration, but the monarch is definitely the longest and most famous of all the insect, you know, migration patterns in, I think, much of the world. Why do you think people love monarchs so much? Yeah, well, monarchs monarchs are very charismatic. And one thing we always say is, you know, everybody has the monarch story. Usually they, they have raised monarchs in their homes growing up. They had monarchs in their classrooms. And then they also have this, you know, incredible migration, like we just talked about, that is able to make such, that, such a long journey with so little body weight. It's just really feels like magic. So I think that really inspires and amazes people. And then there are other reasons. I mean, we say we use the monarch as a flagship species, even though people focus on monarch conservation like us, we're helping all of these other species in conserving monarchs. We're also helping to provide habitat for bees and birds and other species that rely on the same habitat. So there are lots of benefits of protecting and conserving monarchs. Do you feel COVID-19 has been a benefit to monarchs in any way? Ooh, that's a great question. Fewer cars on the road? Yeah, that could certainly be that could certainly be a thing. We know that during migration there is some mortality with roadsides and in their migratory routes. But other than that, it's hard to really quantify the impacts of COVID-19 on a population like monarchs. I know for my work at least, I've been much more productive at home with fewer distractions. So I get a lot more work done around monarch conservation, but it's really hard to quantify the impacts on the species as a whole. Now, do monarchs migrate singly or do they migrate in like packs? 
Agreed. Yeah, we we do see monarchs roosting, which is hanging in trees together sometimes in small groups as they're flying south, but they don't all migrate together. It's kind of a sporadic thing. It depends on when they're born and where they are at. So now what are some of the things the, uh, your partnership of organizations are doing to combat habitat loss and agricultural loss? Yeah, there are a lot of organizations that are working to put habitat in the ground Some organizations are funding those projects, trying to raise money to pay for the seeds. Native seeds are quite costly and expensive, so we need money and funding to fund habitat projects. Other partners are doing the physical work of habitat restoration. So they're out there, you know, tilling tilling fields, converting things from agriculture to native prairie. We have a lot of partners that are out there educating people about why we need native habitats and why monarchs and other species matter. So yeah, we really have a variety of things our partners are doing and all of those pieces are important and necessary to really be successful in conserving monarchs. So can you tell our listeners, what would be the ideal situation for the monarch butterfly in the United States? What would have to happen to bring the numbers up back to respectable levels? Yeah, that is that is the million dollar question. Well, one... I mean, in terms of habitat loss, there are some goals around putting in a certain amount of habitat that we think will bring the monarch population back up to a sustainable level. And scientists have estimated that we need somewhere around 1.3 billion stems of milkweed added back to the landscape to bring the monarchs back, the eastern monarchs back to a sustainable population size. But we know that habitat loss isn't the only threat threat that monarchs are facing. We know they face threats from pesticide use that directly and indirectly harms them. We know that they're facing other threats like non-native plants and invasive species. They're really all of these threats that they're facing. And so conserving them effectively requires thinking about all of the different pieces of the puzzle and trying to combat them all, um, even though that sounds like a big task. Right. So the listeners that I have, a lot of them are new to native gardening. They're very excited about it, and they want to build their own monarch migration way stations in their backyards. Could you talk a little bit about that, what what that would look like, or, and what would be the ideal plants to have? Yeah, well, first, I think that's a great idea, and planting habitat is one of the best things you can do to help monarchs and other species, and backyard gardens have a huge role to play in doing that. So when creating habitat in the backyard garden, I tend to keep in mind three different things, the diversity of plants, the nativity of them, whether they're native or non-native, and then thirdly, checking to make sure that you're sourcing them from appropriate locations. So first, in terms of diversity, we know that monarchs and other pollinators need food sources through the entire duration of each season. So it's important to consider adding plants that have different bloom times. So some that bloom in the beginning of the season, some that bloom in the middle of the season, and then some that are blooming late in the season. And then Secondly, there are some non-native species that can have unintended consequences for monarchs. So we really focus on planting species that are native to your region because those are best adapted to the local temperature and climatic conditions. 
And then lastly, like I said, pesticides and insecticides can harm monarchs. So you'll want to check where you're sourcing your plants. Um, it's important to ask your growers or suppliers whether the plants are being treated at any stage, whether they're treated as seeds or plants with any kind of pesticides, because that can actually end up harming the monarchs when you're intending to provide habitat for them. So in terms of the plants you're putting in the ground, monarchs need milkweed. Milkweed is the only food source that caterpillars can eat. And there are over 100 native milkweed species to the United States. So there are options. There are usually, I don't know, a handful of species that are common and native to a particular region. Some of the common ones are common milkweed, which is Asclepia syriaca. There's also a couple other ones like swamp milkweed, butterfly weed, and world milkweed that are really nice and provide a diversity of those milkweed sources in your garden. And then in terms of flowering plants, there are a lot of different species based on your region that are blooming at particular times. But one special plant that monarchs seem to really love is called Leatris or blazing star. And anyone who has that in their yard and has seen monarchs on it know that somehow monarchs can find that. It seems like from a million miles away. It's a really special one for monarchs. And then others like bee balm, wild bergamot, hyssops, goldenrods, asters, coneflowers, joe pieweed, all of those are really great native nectar plants to include in a garden. So basically, when the monarchs migrate north again after the winter, they arrive in New England late spring, early summer. And they subsist on all the plants you just mentioned for nectar. And then they decide it's time, females anyway, they decide it's time to lay their eggs. Then what happens after that? Yeah, so you're exactly right. Those, those monarchs coming north from that really energy intensive migration need nectar right away. So it's really important that we have those early season nectar sources so that they can continue fueling their journey as they move north. And then so that they have the appropriate energy that they get from the nectar to reproduce. So they then lay their eggs on milkweed plants and the eggs hatch and those caterpillars consume the milkweed plants until they become adults themselves. And then there are usually around two generations that are produced throughout the season until they reach the fall again, in which the cycle starts all over again. So it's really essential to have both milkweed and nectar plants throughout the duration of each season. Right. So they lay these teeny tiny little yellowish white eggs, sometimes on the underside of the milkweed leaves. But typically the, the eggs are only found laid on the milkweed plant itself, sometimes even on the seed casings. I've seen them on seed casings on occasion too, but typically they always seem to be under on the underside of the leaves. And then those little eggs hatch and they munch down all of your milkweed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We get those concerns from, from people in their gardens running out of milkweed. So we usually suggest, yeah, when you the saying is when you plant it, they will come typically. So it's yeah, it's good to have more than one milkweed plant, it's good to have quite a few so that you have enough to feed the caterpillars. And yeah, they do consume quite a bit. It takes about two weeks for a caterpillar to go from egg to its final caterpillar stage. So they're eating that for about two weeks at a time per caterpillar. I have about 50 or 60 milkweed plants in our yard. We have a one acre property. And I always know the eggs have hatched when I go outside and I see all these stripped stems what used to be plants are just these sort of sticks sticking up in the air because the monarch eggs have hatched and they've just voraciously eaten every part of the plant they can find. 
And then what happens after that? They hatch from the egg, they turn into larvae, they fatten up from eating. But something important is also happening too. They're becoming very toxic because they're ingesting the milkweed, right? There's a this milkweed sap is very toxic. Yeah, in terms of the milkweed toxicity, milkweed plants do have cardenolide toxins in them. And when monarchs eat the milkweed, they sequester or basically hold those toxins in their bodies so that it doesn't harm themselves, but it can harm or taste bitter to predators who would consume monarchs like birds. So there's this famous picture of blue jays by Lincoln Brower, I believe. And you'll see a blue jay, a naive blue jay consume a monarch, and then it'll vomit because the monarch is toxic and tastes bitter and bad. (laughs) So yes, monarchs are indeed toxic and they have the aposomatic coloration that bright orange and black coloration is an indicator to predators that they are toxic. But the one thing to note is that Monarchs have a variety of invertebrate predators. So there are things like spiders and stink bugs that eat monarchs. And those invertebrate predators aren't really, they don't seem to be affected by the toxins like vertebrate or bird species might be. So some of the impacts from agriculture you had mentioned, what are some of the pesticides that are causing a problem? Yeah, well, there's there's really a lot we don't know about pesticide use in general, because there are so many different classes of pesticides, and we don't know exactly what the lethal and sublethal effects on each individual species is. But we do know that there are some classes of pesticides, like neonicotinoids. Those are being really widely used, and we do know that there are lethal and sublethal effects on monarchs. And that's being used also in places like urban-suburban areas, is to treat plants, to get rid of pests. So they're being used outside of agriculture as well. There have been studies that show, you know, direct harm, um, immediate death from high levels of neonicotinoids, but also more subtle effects like reduced lifespan. So I understand neonicotinoids, if they're put on the plant, it affects the plant, the roots, and the soil around the plant. Do you know, does it also affect the milkweed seeds as well? Yeah, so when they're, they're systemic pesticides, so that's exactly right, they, um, when treated, even if they're treated as a seed, that pesticide becomes in every tissue of the plant, in the stem, the leaves, the roots, and then like you mentioned, has the ability to leach out of the plant into the soil or waterways nearby. So yeah, that's why it's been quite a concern is because of the systemic nature of the pesticide. The effects can linger for several years. So it's so important for our listeners who are planning to buy milkweed to not just buy native, but also organic, to find a source from an organic supplier who can guarantee to the buyer that the plants have not been treated with any type of pesticide, especially neonicotinoids. A lot of plant growers in your typical nursery, they don't know, you know, they buy from several different growers. The growers pack those plants in several different trucks from different shipping companies, and then they're shipped to the garden center. So between the actual growing and then the shipping, I know some truckers spray the neonicotinoids right into the truck where the plant trays are and then ship it to the garden center. So it's really, it's hard to control without intimately knowing your your grower and your shipper, you can't really promise a customer that they're organic unless you have some sort of contractual agreement with them that they will not use pesticides. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really, 
really complicated to get sometimes to the bottom of whether or not they've been treated at all. And so oftentimes we recommend talking to local smaller nurseries who have, you know, more control over the production of the plants that maybe have grown it from seed to the full plant and would have more knowledge about the source of that plant. I also know there are people that will gather, they won't harm the plant, but they'll gather some milkweed pods, pull the seeds out of the pods, let them dry, and then plant them either directly, you know, once the, once it starts, the ground starts getting really frozen, we'll place them on the ground or actually put them in containers in soil and leave them outside so that they sprout in the springtime as a way of being, you know, I guess you would say 99% sure that nothing's been sprayed or treated. I mean, again, you would have to know if you walk into a field, you have to know who owns the field and what they do with the field of milkweed that they have. So it's very challenging, very challenging to guarantee an organic plant for the monarchs. But it is possible. It is possible by searching out and contacting the organic growers in, in your particular region. Yeah, and I, I entirely agree. And I think, you know, the more demand we have for native plants that are not treated with pesticides, the more production we'll have of those. So it's really important for, you know, growers and suppliers to hear voices from, you know, people planting backyard gardens. And that could be really powerful in, yeah, reducing the amount of pesticides used. Right. Now, the other important aspect of having a migration station is the trees that are nearby the way station. Could you talk about that? There are some trees that provide excellent protection for monarchs from wind and rain and cold. They do utilize trees along the migration route at night to shelter themselves. They roost together in groups usually. So it is important to have some of those structures as they're migrating. But yeah, I think less is known about what they're actually using to roost in along the way and how, you know, how picky they are with certain tree species. I think we just don't really know. Right. I, 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 they tend, I mean, I'm just, just, just from personal observation, they tend to really like the flat broadleaf evergreen leaves of like Eastern red cedar. They're nice and flat. They can sort of sandwich themselves in between two leaves. And it's almost like having an umbrella overhead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> keep the rain. Yeah. There's, these monarchs are such a contradiction. They're, you know, they're so strong in that they can migrate all the way south. Mm -hmm yet their wings tatter so easily in heavy rain and winds. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Also, when planning your monarch migration way station, apparently scientific studies are showing that the females love to hide out when it's breeding time near the milkweed, and the males are all over in the nectaring flower area. <laughs> so it stands to reason that you're going to want to plant your milkweeds fairly close to your nectaring flowers like your aster and your goldenrod and your joe pieweed so that these males can find the females. I would think the further away these planting areas are, the harder it is for them to find each other so that they can mate. Now, can you tell me about, is there any legislation pending right now that you know of that is designed to help the monarchs? Yeah, well, a big decision is coming up in December. Monarchs were petitioned to be listed under the Endangered Species Act starting in 2014. And so the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has been conducting a species status assessment to determine whether or not monarchs should be listed under the Endangered Species Act. And so that decision was supposed to be due in 2019, but had been delayed another year. So it should be coming about the middle of this month. You know, there are various 
factors at play there. They take into account the population as a whole. So they have to consider both the Eastern and the Western population. So there are implications nationally. So we, we don't really know what's going to happen yet. We'll know more soon. So is there anything I missed that you want to add in? Anything you want to talk about? One thing people find interesting is with the migratory generation, you asked about how can that fall generation travel all the way from the Northeast to Mexico, that same butterfly, how do they do that? And they, the fall monarchs that are born are born in a state of what's called reproductive diapause. And that means that their reproductive system and structures aren't fully developed yet. And that strategy sort of allows them to save energy and instead expend that energy on the migration. So we know in organisms that reproduction is really costly. So it's kind of a benefit to not have your reproductive system developed right away. And so there are certain cues that cause that state of reproductive uh, diapause, such as shortening day length, senescing milkweed, and cooling temperatures. So can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Tell us your your website address. Yeah, you can find us at monarchjointventure.org. And we have tons of information on our website. We have informational handouts on different topics, um, videos. You can find our list of partners there, a summary of the work we do. And then we're also on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So you can follow us there as well. And what would be a typical Facebook post? Do you offer tips on um, how people can grow native plants for the monarch or... Yeah, that's a great question. We have really a variety of Facebook posts. Right now, we're running a series that is kind of an FAQ on the Endangered Species Act potential listing decision. So what we just talked about, it explains what are the possible outcomes of that listing decision? What does it mean for people trying to work toward monarch conservation? What does it mean for the species? So right now, we have a series of posts about one per day leading up to the decision, and it's really you know, a helpful tool to help people learn more about it. Otherwise, you know, sometimes we have fun facts about monarchs. Otherwise, it's centered around habitat projects going on, um, other things you can do to help monarchs. So it's really a variety of posts that you'll find on our social media pages. I want to thank Laura Lukens from Monarch Joint Venture for all of that great information. To find out more about Monarch Joint Venture and all of the wonderful work they are doing, go to monarchjointventure.org. Also go to our notes in the show description for a great YouTube video about their organization. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, Please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook.
Well, that concludes our special holiday edition of Bird Hugger, folks. I am wishing all of you a very merry holiday and a wonderful new year. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. And we'll see you in 2021.